GPS, powered by SET. Welcome to Radio Primavera Sound, and today we're talking to multimedia artist, filmmaker, and musician Lawrence Leck about his mind-blowing uh, new film and soundtrack, Idol. As ever, the conversation took place uh, via Zoom, um, and you know you get all the Zoom kind of audio quality. Uh, but I think the interview is really interesting, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Radio Primavera Sound, and today we're talking to Lawrence Leck, a multimedia artist, filmmaker, and musician. Um, and he really came to my attention uh, with the new uh, album, uh, film soundtrack, Idol, that, that's coming out, or should I say AI Doll, well, I'll ask, um, coming out soon, which is an absolutely fantastic piece of work. Lawrence, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Hi from London. I, I should ask, is it Idol or is it AI Doll? You know, actually, some it's it's either to be honest, because it's in all caps. So I mean, it's meant to be a play on AI and Idol. But some people, if they've only seen it, will say AI Idol or like Idol. But it doesn't matter. Do you know? It didn't actually occur to me until I had to say it out loud. I was like, suddenly like, oh <laughs> no. So you call yourself? You describe yourself um, as a simulation artist. What what does that exactly mean? So I guess. You know, besides doing a, a whole bunch of different things, most of the time I essentially use video game software to create virtual worlds and make soundtracks. And sometimes it ends up being a, a, a film like Idol, sometimes soundtrack, sometimes a video game, and sometimes a kind of um, art installation. But, um, you know, the kind of simulation artist tag came from when I was doing this project called uh, No Tell with Code 9. And it was kind of an audio-visual project, and uh, essentially it was for his last album, Nothing. And, you know, I was thinking, what's the best way to describe myself? Because, you know, like, if you say artist, a lot of people think paintbrushes and sculpture. If you say filmmaker, a lot of people think, you know, feature filmmaking. So um, that's why I came up with the idea of simulation artist, because it's both about the tools I use to make my work and also to deal with the subject matter, which is often, I guess, science fiction related or to do with, you know, virtual worlds and virtual reality, I guess. And what role does music play in your work? How important is it? I mean, it's, it's pretty essential. I mean, I essentially come from a background in doing like architecture and electronic music. So I've been kind of making, you know, music either as a kind of DIY thing since I guess like the height of blog, blog distribution of music on the internet since around 2008. So I've always been interested, obviously not just music making for its own sake, but also in how the, um, I guess, production and socioeconomic things around music and, you know, electronic music, especially talk about wider issues in the world. So, you know, for example, Idol, it's about, it's set in the year 2065 and it continues a few different tan tangents of storylines I've been working on in other films. And it's essentially about a superstar who wants to make a comeback. And so she enlists a, um, an AI writing ghost, an, an AI songwriter to ghostwrite a new string of hits. So it's both thinking about, you know, this idea of non-human creativity, um, outsourcing, out, sorry, outsourcing creative production and automation of creative tasks. Uh, so, you know, like, as in my opinion, you know, electronic music 
has many different kinds of automation designed to make essentially mu music easier to create. And I think that's a really interesting thing, both from a, I guess, psychological standpoint. And, you know, so, you know, you, anyone can be a DJ overnight, learn a few tools, add a few plugins and ta-da. You learn a skill that would previously take many years to master. And it's the same as, you know, for myself, like coming, you know, playing guitar, um, this idea of an instrument not being something that takes years to master, but, you know, get Ableton, get a few plugins, and you can create something uh, very quickly. And of course, AI-generated music is, I guess, one extreme version of this automation of creativity, where essentially the human doesn't even uh, have that much to do apart from setting out the rules that the music will be made, created by genre and so on. So yeah, music is really important, both in the films I make uh, and in the subject matter as well. What is it? So one thing I possibly didn't get um, is when making the music for Idol, did, I, I know AI was involved um, in the story. Was AI involved in actually your process of creating the music? Yeah, in, but not in, um, not in a straightforward way. So, of course, many musicians like Actress and Holly Herndon were, you know, experimenting with AI-generated music. But in, um, in a lot of cases, essentially, AI-generated music is the same issue. Basically, having AI-generated music using, you know, neural networks or, or GANs and, you know, um, Markov chains and different technologies essentially it generates a lot of trash, essentially. So the role of the kind of artist or composer then becomes one which is more like a kind of curator, I guess, like picking this favorite bits of generative music. Um, so I looked at a few different AI generative music tools and I just felt that like for my purposes, which is to make a soundtrack that for the film actually sounds as generic as possible, it's actually better to do that, you know, essentially just being a songwriter, you know, doing it the old fashioned way. So whereas what is it? the um, actual deep learning, you know, the kind of contemporary methods of AI, deep learning tools weren't used. Um, I was also using research into what deep learning would generate. So in about three or four years ago, when there was a lot more interest in, uh, you know, using AI-generated music, there were examples that you might have heard, that, such as, you know, like uh, AI-generated songs based on a back catalogue of the Beatles, actresses, which is AI-generated songs based on actresses' back catalogue, and so on. Um, but fast forward a few years, and AI-generated music is actually, you know, essentially the, the uses for it are really quite mundane. So I followed a startup called um, IVA, A-I-V-A, um, that basically make copyright-free music for adverts. So you, you, know, you, ha you, you add in your genre, the mood, and it generates music. Um, so what was interesting to me is actually not using AI to generate the music. What was interesting to me was to see how the um, business side of what makes AI viable from an economic perspective actually is just for copyright-free music, which from an artistic perspective is not exciting. But I think from a, I guess, socioeconomic one is like fascinating, you know, it's, it's there to 
not make something original. It's actually there to make something as bland and as generic, as Muzak-like, as background music-like as possible. So this is one, one of the things I find that I liked most about the Idol soundtrack, was that it sounds very futuristic and, and beautiful, um, and it's obviously a very experimental work, but at the heart of it, there are some brilliant pop songs as well. Um, did you enjoy writing those songs? Was it something very different for you? Yeah, I mean, I think going back to, you know, essentially starting electronic music from this from the background of playing guitar, I think what was interesting with this soundtrack in particular as, you know, with in recent years as I've been you know, more involved with like synth synthesizers and loops and so on, I kind of remember just the basics again. It sounds really, again, really mundane and boring, but going back to just traditional songwriting was actually really interesting for me. So, you know, the other thing is as a, you know, I follow a lot of music technology things and it seems that, you know, one trajectory of it, which you can see in a lot of, um, you know, whether it's uh, Apple GarageBand or Logic or Ableton or, you know, Serato or whatever, these technologies exist to uh, reduce the amount of expert performance that you need to execute. It's not that different from like a, you know, like a, a car that has autopilot on it. Um, so anyway, for these songs, I just wanted to go back to a kind of verse-chorus-verse structure. And, in, it, and it also works in the film because in the film, essentially, the, um, not only does the, the superstar enlist the skills of this uh, AI songwriter, who is me, but also there's a contrast between the songs that Diva, who's the main character, the songs that Diva wants to make and the music that she's forced to produce. So the music that she's forced to produce is essentially like, you know, uh, electro, like, you know, electro pop stadium kind of anthems. But the music that she likes, and this is, has like subtle nods to like folk music, is actually more like, you know, verse, chorus, verse, song structure. So the first track on the album, um, which isn't actually a full song, but it's kind of Diva is humming along to the melody to, um, what is it, like a, a Joni Mitchell song called All I Want, but it, in, in the album, it's, uh, it's kind of translated into Mandarin. And the final track on the album, the bonus track uh, called In My Prime is actually like a traditional English folk song. And it was recorded by, um, you know, a 60s kind of folk supergroup called Pentangle. And on the Pentangle album, it's actually a cappella, So it's just purely vocal. So anyway, the, my point is that the soundtrack, Idol soundtrack, starts and ends with folk songs, literally. And in the middle becomes more electronic. Um, and kind of more generic, more genre driven. So even though, of course, the kind of sound, um, the sound design aspect of it is heavily electronic, the actual songwriting structure, uh, the structure of the tracks themselves goes from songwriting to electronic music, which is more loop based and so on, to back to songs again. So it's really fun to um, contrast these two different work, kinds of composition, you know, the songwriting which is basically like verse chorus verse to like electronic music which is essentially like um rhythm and variation i guess and to like try and blend these two things together
I have a theory, and it may be nonsense, <laughs> but I, I have a theory that for a lot of um, experimental um, music producers, um, they almost need a character to make pop music. That that somehow having a character uh, like Diva, in your experience, allows mm. them in a way. It sort of frees them up to write to write pop music. Did you find that was the way with you, or is my my theory a load of? Uh, no, it's 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 interesting because I think part of what's interesting, I think, with a lot of musicians, experimental or not experimental or purely pop, it's this idea of the persona, right? So, you know, as a, as a visual artist and filmmaker, it, it's kind of different. So in the visual arts, generally the artist is more or less themselves, right? Because the craft, what the thing that they're presenting, <clears throat> the film, the painting or the sculpture is to the public or to the audience produced by the artist. Whereas in music, it's different, I think, because, you know, music in terms of, uh, Essentially, I feel that the artist becomes the persona. Madonna becomes Madonna. Beyonce becomes Beyonce, for example. Um, burial becomes Burial. When they are, either when they're creating the music, but also to create like the mask that goes out into the world. So whether the mask is anonymity, Burial, or kind of like a twisted anonymity, which is like Sophie or something like that, um, or whether it's, just a hyper version of themselves, you know, this idea of like a Billie Eilish, like very authentic and, you know, like a bedroom pop producer, that idea of like the mask is, is always there. So for me, like Diva, because she's just not, not just a fictional character based on several, like an amalgamation of several real people, but is also like a way to, channel different thoughts on creativity. So with Diva, for example, I wasn't just thinking about, you know, for example, Joni Mitchell or like Pentangle, like I already mentioned, but also, um, what was I also thinking? I was also thinking about Prince, for example. And during the, during the make, you know, while under developing it, I was watching a lot of Prince live videos. And part of the really ironic thing that was interesting really uh, counterintuitive was that death is good for sales. So uh, I watched Prince's Super Bowl performance where he did Purple Rain and it started pouring like torrential rain. And it just really struck me. And that was, I think, just like a couple of years before he, he died. It just really struck me that the ironic thing with stardom and this idea of the persona is that even though the physical body Prince himself is, passes away, the myth, the print of Prince uh, lives on. And of course, that's really good for sales and not thinking about it in a cynical way. But of course, after every major artist's death, um, it, you get a huge spike in sales. And of course, you know, some record companies are very motivated to make the most of this moment um, that, you know, even though the, the, the actual human being is gone, the artist lives on. And I just thought that was such a crazy thing. And also because Idol is set in, in the future, it also reflects my observations on, I guess, influencer culture today. Not just that some stars are expected to be perpetually on show, you know, streaming, live stream podcasts, you know, just perpetually present for the fans, but also this idea of intimacy, like how, you know, Billie Eilish, for example, is kind of 
a persona that is not this star so inaccessible high up on the stage like a Prince or Beyonce, but is actually a star that is in the fans' living room. So it actually is much of a kind of personal interaction. So that's just a really interesting thing of how this idea of this second self has, has shifted. I think it's very interesting you bring up the idea of the persona because um, you mentioned in, in the introduction to the album that the diva's voice is created with a Vocaloid voice synthesizer. Mm -hmm. Does it, is there actually a human voice behind diva, albeit one that's being quite manipulated, or is it purely an electronic thing? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because the fact the fact is that it's it's both. So diva is actually sung by uh, the non-spoken voice. The singing voice is Cyber Diva, um, who's actually Cyber Diva Two. So in the previous film Geomancer, the music was sung by Cyber Diva version one, and now Yamaha in the years since has upgraded it to Cyber Diva Two. The particular technology that uh, Yamaha uses for their Vocaloid software, and the most famous is Hatsune Miku, is, um, is uh, it's based on real human singers. Real human singers who, uh, who sing either in, in a very specific language because the phonetics, the vowel sounds, the consonants, the actual sound of a particular language is very specific. So whereas Hatsune Miku sings and is sampled, sorry, the human Hatsune Miku originally is sampled in speaking uh, and singing in Japanese, um, Cyber Diva is sampled singing in English. So even though this, um, let's say the stem cells for the voice are a human, the way that they're recombined so that they flow en um, seamlessly from like uh, the vowels to the consonants in, in the spoken language are very, um, those are algorithm algorithmically mixed, if that makes sense. Um, and also the vocabulary for these um, Vocaloid software voice banks is very specific. So for example, even though um, Cyber Diva might be singing, singing in English, there are certain words that are completely missing from the vocabulary. So, for example, in the previous soundtrack, which was with Cyber Diva 1, I wanted to say um, the war only lasted for, you know, two years or something. But the word war, which is obviously a very common word, wasn't actually in their dictionary. So instead of saying war, W-A-R, I would have to make war, like W-O-O and A-H as two separate vowels that then get mixed together. So the long answer to your question is it really is a mix between a human source material algorithmically remixed, as it were, and then edited further by a human sound editor. So it's not as straightforward as, you know, purely human or purely machine. And then again, what is uh, with this kind of work? Well, this is one of the things I find so fascinating because I guess typically when uh, I listen to a song um, and a singer says something like, I don't know, I miss you, mm -hmm. I tap into that, or I feel like I tap into that emotion of an actual human being missing someone. And as another human being, I know what that means. Mm -hmm. um, and I find having a singer that doesn't actually exist is very interesting because, um, 
I found the music on Idol very emotional, even mm -hmm. if there wasn't really a human behind it. If you, I mean, obviously you, you made it, I know. Right, right. There wasn't a, like a human singing it. I wasn't listening to some human singing about their emotions. How, how do you think, I mean, is this, is it, do you think that we, we as humans can listen to something that, that's created in this, um, by AI or an artificial way and, and be as moved as we would by an actual human voice? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because, of course, many, like, you know, musicologists and, like, neuroscientists try to examine, I guess, the, the relationship between sound and, well, sound, empathy, bonding. So, you know, with psychologists, for example, there's a lot of many, many, many studies in developmental psychology about the, you know, bonding experience created by parents and child or mother and child through the voice. And that, and, and some people, for example, say that um, in nursery rhymes around the world, basically, the, the melodic interval of a falling major third, which means, you know, a specific kind of singing, is very natural and very kind of bond building. And, you know, if you look at like songs sung between parents and children around the world, you can see this interval. The problem with these studies, of course, is that, you know, you don't, it's a chicken and egg situation. You don't know whether this melody emerges from the fact that it's within the human range of singing or within, or because it is something that harmonically or melodically rather sounds good to the, the human ear. And I think, you know, I suspect that the truth is somewhere in, in between both of these two things. Um, but how it relates to, you know, do we need to hear the human singer to feel empathy? You know, like, do we need to listen to T-Pain pre-auto-tune to, you know, like have more emotions being driven into us? And I think it's a really interesting question, particularly with AI, because, you know, one of the fundamental uh, questions about AI is, or tests about AI is, you know, Alan Turing's Turing test, where it's a experimental setup designed to uh, test whether uh, uh, a, a thing answering questions is a human or AI, essentially. Um, I think the question with music is that if you didn't know whether it's a human or AI who's generated this stuff, does it matter, essentially? Or if you heard an amazing piece of music and it turned out that um, it was generated by an AI, would it, and when, while listening to it, you felt genuine feelings of happiness, sadness, whatever, wonder or loss, and then you found out it was made by an AI. Does that, like, what, where does that leave your, your experience? Because the experience was the same, you know, the experience was in the past but it was before you had knowledge of whether it was an AI or not. And I think that's really interesting. Um, in, some, in some studies previously with like orchestras, there was um, basically historically, there were far fewer female uh, players in the brass section because people used to think predominantly that females did not have as powerful lungs and therefore they couldn't, you know, have as forceful 
um, performances on brass instruments. But when they started doing auditions for orchestras behind screens, right? So you couldn't tell if the player was male or female, all of a sudden, you know, the ratio of female brass players in orchestras went up hugely. So it's obviously that's male, female brass players rather than human or AI generated music, but it's the same kind of thing. Does it really matter about the source of the sound if the experience is real? In the, the, the world building in your work as 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 well. Um, I I love it when when artists create their own their own world. Um, and I'm interested to see like how far you go with this. I mean, I I tend to see world building. Um, you might get it with um, an artist like um, Craftwork is a good example for me. Mm-hmm. They, they they build a world not so much in the technical sense of of creating a, a CGI world, but in in the sense of I always think with craftwork you could imagine their image they've created so well you could imagine okay this book is typically craftwork or you know this food would be craftwork mm. even if they haven't said it you know just because you're like okay well that makes sense and that that doesn't how, mm. how do you go about world book? i mean do you think about these things on a level like could you could you say what diva likes and doesn't like um or do you think of it more in in the visual the visual sense yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question because, you know, world building means a million different things, uh, depending on what angle you look at it, you know, so from a, let's say if we look at Idol as a soundtrack, right, what's the relevant bits of building for the soundtrack would probably be the film, the artwork, the background of the artist, the tools used to make the music and so on. But if you look at um, Idol as a, as a film or like as a series of films, the world building goes into much much wider kind of, you know, histories, geopolitical histories, social economics. There's also themes of different ideas I've been looking at in terms of Sino-Futurism, which is the relationship of China and East Asia and AI. Um, so the, the world building expands and contracts depending on what's relevant. I think what's interesting with craft work, and I might be totally wrong, is the kind of culture and time they came out of, you know, specifically like, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, West, West Germany. Um, so to me, craft work is, the, the world building of craft work is a lot, has a lot to do with, you know, the kind of German Bauhaus idea of like this, you know, um, that many different forms of the arts are related, you know, in, in the Bauhaus case, actually less music, but definitely like theater, design, architecture, and so on. And I think, I'm not sure if it was Florian, I uh, forget his surname. Uh, I one or two, Exactly. One of the, they, they, I don't know, they were like either, sorry, remind me, are they from Cologne or Dusseldorf? Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf, right. So this relationship of like, um, sorry, Dusseldorf, like architecture. I think one of their dads was an architect. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think sorry, dad. Yeah, yeah. Then, then I don't think it's very far-fetched to think that the world building side of things is this exposure to architecture, which is, you know, creation of the new world, right? But I think what's interesting 
um, for craft work at, and, and that time in Germany is that it's not just the creation of a new world, but that new world also erases the old one, right? So it's like pure architecture or modernist architecture of this kind of craft work graphics or the robotics. It has nothing to do with, you know, the Third Reich's war machine or the mobilization of all German industries in the Second World War. It's this kind of clean, pure and new thing, which to me at least, like has really erased all traces of the, like, I mean, you know, ideological horrors that came out just 20 or 30 years before. And I always find that interesting because I mean, I was, I mean, I was born in Germany. So sometimes I think about what was the wider context of what was going on industrially in, in this sense. So of course, what I'm trying to say is that craft work, yes, the world building is amazing, but it's even more amazing to what it's kind of glossing over um, rather than uh, what just what it's kind of creating in its like endless autobahn, you know, synthetic universe. And of course it's very kind of tongue in cheek, I know, you know, focusing on superficial things like, you know, the model or robots or driving. And I, I, I like thinking that there's a lot below that as well. And one, one thing I find interesting about world building and, and, um, and idol is that it's, coming out at a time where a lot of us are sh frankly shut off in our own houses and we're not able to uh, travel in, in the physical sense of the word. Um, and for me, I find having uh, an album or indeed a film, but it, it, the creator's its own world is, is something I want now more than ever. I mean, it, I'm, I'm sure it's coincidence that, that this is now when it's coming out, I would imagine. But do you think that the world in which we're living in sort of helps in, will actually help people to, to, to listen to your music and to watch your films just because it is so relevant to what's happening now? Um, I think, I just feel it's, it's very hard to like predict what any kind of viewer or listener or audience might find useful, I, I suppose. Um, I think, you know, Idol is really about many things, but it's also about, uh, not to sound too grand, but I think it's about, you know, the geopolitical things that are embedded within the entertainment industry. And of course, music is part, of course, it's an amazing art form, but it's also part of how entertainment is distributed and spread. And you know, I could talk about things like, you know, world building is very interesting from a musician or an artist perspective. But of course, world building is part of what politicians do every day. You know, you're creating a myth of a future place that people may or may not want to live in. So just like, you know, the idea of utopia, it's, it's, it's potentially a, a dangerous thing politically. And also, of course, world building is what whatever Netflix series or, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe does on a much larger scale. So that might have more to do with, you know, escapism and the idea that, you know, more content is needed as people cannot um, receive things outdoors. Um, but I think whether it's relevant or not, these are issues that I was kind of like thinking about 
for a long time. For example, like what does the, the growth of influencer culture say? I mean, it's not really saying anything, but it's, I guess, symptomatic of much larger changes in how um, people relate to each other and people relate to the space that they inhabit. So, you know, for example, a few years ago, it might be the question of, you know, the kind of matrix-like divide between physical and virtual space, which of course is, is very present nowadays. Um, but I think, yeah, the context of these conversations has, has changed quite a lot. I was interested because No Tell, which was your, your, your previous work with Code 9, we, we mentioned it briefly earlier, um, was, as I understand it, it was basically an exploration of empty, unpopulated spaces via a sort of empty hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, again, over the past six months, we've been we've seen, you know, uh, our cities totally empty in a way that, that I don't think anyone would have predicted. Um, was it strange to you to see to see that? Like, did you at any point think, you know, oh, this is what I was, this is quite a lot to do with what I was doing previously? I mean, I feel it, 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 it's not that, it, it is definitely an uncanny feeling to, to you know, when, when the kind of slightly tongue in cheek slash dystopian worldview that I might explore sometimes becomes part of a reality. But I think the other thing I'm quite, uh, not, I guess quite cautious of is that sometimes there's an, I guess, how should I say, like opportunistic use of crisis. So for example, this might be um, whatever, artists and some philosophers going like, oh, look at this world that coronavirus has brought about. This is like, you know, I totally predict that, predicted this in my anti-capitalist book 25 years ago. And I think that's totally true and valid. However, like I'm not like, whereas for me, I think I'm trying to, um, not exactly make a social commentary from, from that point of view. It's more interesting uh, to think about how, um, I guess, yeah, like these speculative fictions and reality might converge. Not that, you know, reality has become like my fiction or my fictions reflect what I see, but somehow it's neither one nor the other. Kind of like what, um, what I was saying about you know, is the music AI or is the voice AI or hum- machine or human generated? You know, is is the fiction th- that we're living in? Uh, you know, how how real is it? And I think, particularly in 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 these times, because a lot of um, a lot of policies are being made in response to data. You know, what do the numbers say? Where are the numbers going? Where are the trend lines? Um, Unfortunately, it, it is like a collision between data science and people's real lives, which, which is, um, I mean, just as problematic as ever, even, even more so probably, because to me it seems to um, accentuate changes that were already taking place. I wanted to go back briefly. You you mentioned um, the entertainment industry um, and the film uh, stars Code Nine as, and I quote, the unforgiving label boss who, uh, and Code Nine is obviously the, the boss of Hyperdub 
um, the the label on which the record is is coming out. Um, obviously, I'm sure Hyperdub is a, a great label. I'm not, I'm not not suggesting, but what do you think generally of, of the music industry? I, I think I think quite often, like things like the art world or the music industry or the cinematic universe. You know, I think they're kind of like shorthand for creating things, for talking about things that don't really exist. So, for example, some of my friends might say like, oh, you know, it must be whatever. Terrible working in the music industry or like really weird working in the art world. And I think it might seem like that from looking from the outside in, but I feel like, you know, the music industry, frankly, it's like a group of weird people trying to earn a living doing what they like, some of whom obviously like use different tactics and other people, a lot of technologies intervene and so on. Um, so it depends whether what we mean by the music industry is like, you know, I guess this crude old fashioned idea of the mu music industry that I guess I'm poking fun at and idle as like, evil record label bosses, really profit-driven algorithms and stars who want to, you know, be genuine, but at the same time really want to be popular. Um, that's one idea of the music industry. But then there's a much broader sense of the music industry, which is kind of what Idol's also about, which is asking questions like, hang on, like, where exactly do algorithms fit in? You know, where exactly is influencer culture leading us as an you know as as individuals and as like a music loving audience how are we becoming lazy as we get spoon fed via the you know youtube or the tuto or the you know spotify algorithm like how how can you know exciting things that i used to like doing like you know actually finding music the idea of discovery like is that still valid today or am I just being, you know, old, unnecessarily old fashioned? So I'm interested in, I guess, like the music industry as a much wider thing than I guess, like thinking about it as just, you know, individuals and evil record label bosses. I think it's, there's a lot of, you know, what, where do we put things like startup financing and like, how do we feel about that? You know, the fact that like, I think, you know, for example, now I might put on like ambient techno mix on YouTube just to like put on some ambient music. And I've got to say, it's, it's pretty good, you know, selector. And that's kind of a weird thing to think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned in an interview once that when you arrived in the UK, yeah, it struck you as very strange that rave anthems and Eurodance tunes um, were played on the radio. I was wondering, why did, why did that seem like a strange thing to you? I think it seemed strange. I mean, I was probably about, was I like 10 or 11? I think the reason it seems strange is that in, you know, Southeast Asia, like Singapore, Hong Kong, where I grew up, um, the music on the radio was very, very, um, you know, middle of the road, soft rock or pop driven. And what was weird is that, you know, I mean, if, and it seems very like retro now, but, you know, like to hear things like Prodigy tracks on like Capital FM, 
going to school. It's, it's not, it's pretty unusual, I, I, I think. And I think thinking about, you know, knowing a little bit more is that I think thinking of the intersection of like commercial radio and, you know, this like punk attitude, and of course, Prodigy is not punk from a commercial perspective at all. Um, it's just really interesting. I mean, and I think just the sound of things that are much like harsher, like not really harsher, like obviously well-produced, but like much more raw sonically was even to, you know, my uneducated 10 year old ears was, was kind of like stood out quite a lot. And this is Call of Beauty, the eSports reprise. Is that a nod to that, that kind of moment? Cause that, that kind of ends up in quite a sort of ravey Eurodancey place. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. I think it's also to think about like that was, you know, this like hard, hard style Eurodance music. But of course, like if you look at, um, I think what's interesting is, you know, I think specifically Call of Beauty, which in Idol is like the game within the film, is that, you know, esports has its own logic, basically, with like, um, you know, commenta uh, commentators and music and like, you know, hyped up rave anthems. So the reason I made it sound like that is actually because if you look at, you know, esports replays on, you know, YouTube for esports tournaments or whatever, that's the kind of music they play. So it's less like, I guess, evocative of like, you know, my own memories. And it's actually what, you know, frankly, kids are listening to when they're playing games for 20 hours straight. <laughs> the, the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, it actually relates to another of your, your pieces, which was... Um, uh, Europa Mon Amour uh, from 2006, which um, envisaged Dalston uh, post-Brexit, and it was a very uh, apocalyptic um, vision. Obviously, it's it's 2020 now, um, and the UK has left the European Union, albeit with you know all the uh, agreements in place until the end of the year. Um, how do you view the whole situation? I mean, obviously, your your artwork was was very it was very apocalyptic. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you feel about it now? Yeah, I mean, I guess mixed feelings. So actually that particular video and game work was done at the beginning of May, if I remember correctly. And I think the vote was just a week or two after that, um, May 2016. Um, I feel, I mean, again, in terms of like not wanting to you know, obviously I feel sad that the future I joked about is kind of increasingly reality, which is, you know, like tears of tears of laughter, basically. Um, but I think that, so in that trailer, actually, I use, um, uh, I, I use a couple of like, you know, like rave anthems, basically. One is like, I think, was it Felix, Don't You Want Me? And, um, and I think Paul, Oakenfold, not over yet, but I mean, Grace, sorry, not over yet. But those two songs in particular, I mean, less about, I guess, the actual, you know, early mid nineties time context that they came from, but it's actually just about like lyrics, right? So right. I think what's interesting in a lot of those kind of like trance anthem kind of thing, it's like happy melody with sad music or sad music, or yeah, basically minor key with happy lyrics, or like sad lyrics in a in a kind of more major key, I guess. So it's that like contrast, like happy, sad, dysphoria, euphoria, coming up, coming down, that 
it, what I'm trying to say is I'm really interested in those like states or events where you feel happy and sad at once, you know, or like this like indeterminate state if it's like, um, yeah, like is it made by a machine or by a human? It's like this in-between zone that you can switch between one or the other, you know, within a minute. And I feel, you know, whether that's in music or in films or artworks or just like whatever experience, that's a really interesting thing to try and capture somehow. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to speak to you today. Um, and congratulations, congratulations again on the album, which is an absolutely fabulous piece of work. I've been really, really enjoying it um, and has been keeping my mind off things, which is, which is oh, an advantage, I think, in 2020.